Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm joined once again with Claire, who's going to help me with something that I personally struggle with, leading by example. Over the course of our days, we can find ourselves telling a loved one they need to help with the cleaning. It's their turn to do the laundry, and perhaps they should read more, or on a much grander scale, that they need to get their entire life in order. At first, we try verbally communicating, but soon find that doesn't work, as our words die the moment they leave the safety of our mouth. We try using post-it notes, text message reminders. We even go so far as to bribe our loved ones with, well, if you do X, I I promise, we'll take that vacation you've always wanted to go on. But alas, nothing. Much like a boulder that won't budge an inch, our loved ones can be as equally as frustrating. Joining me, Claire will explain just how we can get these boulders in our lives to move. Claire, could you start off by telling us what are some of the things that we need to know about leading by example? Absolutely. I think um, in my own experience with leading by example and facing these kind of boulders as you're articulating them, you know, I think for much of my life, I, I was that boulder. I was the one that was frustrating others. And I think that's that's so common for in our kind of coming of age stories, right? We start out as children who are watching, we're learning, we're pushing the limits and seeing what the reactions are. Um, we're failing a lot, we're making mistakes, um, and we're, we're com- coming and kind of grappling with our own personal identity. And as we do that, we're told a lot of these life lessons that are that are universal truths. They're lessons for a reason. They've been around for a long time, whether that's about um, the people that you're associating with, whether it's the hobbies or the, t- the amount of time you're putting into it, whether it's about getting good grades so that you can expose yourself to opportunity and meet new people and be exposed to more things in your life. Um, whether it's about, in my experience, boys and putting yourself into heartbreak and like- Are we going yourself- to get to- are we going to get to know a little teenage Claire here? We are. We're, we're getting into the person that I was. And I think we all were just, even if we knew that something didn't feel right, we just, you know, we're, I think when you're coming of age, you're just so driven by um, that intuition, that animalistic part. And we're not listening to the analytical part of ourselves, even though it's, it's saying these lessons. Um, And so I think opening yourself up to heartbreak with teenage boys is like the perfect example. Um, And it's, and it's painful for a parent, right? Who, who sheltered this child and then is exposing them to whatever it might be, whether it's peers or driving or drugs or, or just the, the dangers of the world. And yet those lessons aren't often listened to except through personal experience. And I don't think it was until I made those mistakes myself and came to orient myself around my own personal responsibility and taking responsibility for those mistakes that the quality of my life actually improved, that I actually sort of oriented myself as an individual with my own goals on my own path and started walking towards that. And I think once you you settle on that orientation, um, and, and we all do at sort of varying times or varying levels or successes throughout our life, it's really 
you know, often then you start looking expert and you start comparing yourself to others and you want to help those around you. You want to help those that you care about, especially whether that's family members or friends or anyone struggling. You want to, to take that same orientation that's gotten you somewhere solid and apply it to others. Um, and I think what you find when we start to do that is that it's just ineffective that saying the words or, you know, giving those, those mottos, um, or those same kind of cliches isn't effective until someone goes through that well, scene. Let's let's go into the mind of teenage Claire. And okay. Let's say she's back in high school, and there are some probably some bad fellows out there. They were probably trying to get Claire to do all the wrong things. And t- tell me a little bit about maybe the teachers in your life or maybe your mom or your dad who obviously had the, the hindsight to know that these guys were trouble. Tell me like how teenage Claire would have processed that, that wisdom coming in her direction at that time in her life. I think that my map was oriented differently and it was, it was more short-sighted. And so I think that, um, there was part of the map that just consciously was oriented toward happiness or like, you know, lower levels of kind of um, satisfaction. And so looking for the cheap thrills that come from a smile or holding hands or a touch or whatever that might be. And that becomes the, the finish line versus, you know, people whose frame of time is 20, 30 years longer has the kind of context to look look at my kind of instant satisfaction and kind of take a step back and really, I think, look at the the person that I could be and the potential and really see so much more. And I think that's what we see in our friends and the people we love is, is the God within them to kind of use a, a union. I think, you know, I, I, I feel you. And I think it kind of goes back to this idea that to some degree, we all have to learn the hard way. Like, you know, like people say it as it's right. like an option, like, okay, I can, you can either listen to me now or you can learn it the hard way. But it seems at least teenagers for that matter, you know, having spent 10 years uh, trying to teach them, they always have to learn the hard way. And I think that learning the hard way generates pain. And mm-hmm. I think pain is a, is a great educator. Exactly. And you have, and, and with that pain, you have to do something with that. And you, ha- and once you can start to take responsibility for that pain, I cause it, I'm going to grapple with it. And I saw the cause and I saw the effect. Now we're on our way toward transformation. So, so in your own kind of educational experiences, what does that look like in letting someone, is it, is it literally creating guardrails so that they only fail to a point or? You know, that's, that's a good question. Like, obviously, you don't want to let someone fail, especially a young person, you don't want to let a young person fail to the point that they're facing 25 years to life. So obviously, there are guardrails of like, okay, that that level of exploration is off the table. I think, though, that we have to leave that space. And this doesn't necessarily just apply to young people. It applies to people of all different ages. We have to create that space of like, has this person learned the hard way yet? Because they might need to have that pain because we all, we all have a hubris and we all have an arrogance of like, nothing bad ever happens to me. And like, I can continue doing what I'm doing. And it may, they may have done it a, a, a few times and nothing bad has happened. Um, like I do have some friends that many times drove home 
I would say kind of tipsy. And they believe that, you know, no matter how many times you warn them, like, do not drive tipsy, they still do it anyway, because they haven't had the painful being pulled over by a cop kind of experience. So I, I think that leave that that space of pain and like, oh my God, I have a court appearance now creates pain. And that's actually the mechanism that like fosters better behavior. And that kind of classic idea or lie of, of someone's permanent record, right? And I think that that and having a mark on it. And I think when and I think this goes back to this personal responsibility, but when a, a an adolescent realizes that their life is really in the end, just theirs. Like, yes, if they were to get that speeding ticket, their parents would be angry and insurance would go up, but really in the end, that's them, you know, and, and, and I think so often, you know, school or grades or success or being good, doing your chores is is perceived as making a parent happy or doing something for the teacher. But when you start to orient toward that personal responsibility, that that's my ticket, that's on me, that you learn from it and you start not doing it again. So I like this idea of like having something painful and then taking ownership over it. Because I, I think that when it's someone else's words being projected at you. Well, that's their values and that's their words and that's their experiences. So could you maybe explain a little bit, Claire, like, because eventually we do have to get to the level where we can take heed from other people. Like that's a useful skill to have, like when you see some people. So what are some of the skills that we need in place so that we, we can put ourselves in a frame of mind to listen to somebody? Yeah, I think there's a, it's a, it's a calibration and it also, I think involves a coming to terms with yourself and kind of looking at yourself in the mirror. Um, Peterson would call this kind of slaying your dragon or cleaning your room, but really taking an account of what do I value? What are my virtues? What are my vices? What, what demons do I have or skeletons do I have in my closet that I could face? Um, and, and this is true. I mean, this sounds heavy, but it's true of adolescents, right? That there's always a conversation that they're avoiding or, you know, everyone has those pieces of their identity that they're just pushing, you know, they're your shadow that you're pushing away. And I think taking, as you take personal responsibility, you start to grapple with those and you start to slowly fix stuff and clean your room and put things in order. And that gets a little bit wider and it gets bigger and bigger. And, and, and there, then you're building up muscle and, and strength that is a little more sustainable than just kind of one lesson at a time. So I think that that's the, it's the coming of age. It's the hero's journey. It's the slaying of the dragon that kind of uh, orients you to be able to listen to others' feedback. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that having patience, having worked with adolescents for a very long time, like patience is key to let them go through their young Simba a hero's journey. I want to turn to something a little bit more frustrating. As we get older, how do we deal exactly with some grown lions, if you would, in our life who still haven't changed? And they may, they may not be doing the most harmful, most dangerous things in the world, but maybe want them to, to just strive for a little bit more in their life. Like that seems to be the very sticky thing. You know, I think that if you deal with somebody and now they have a 
had a court appearance or something, well, then that kind of teaches itself. How about for people who are perhaps going down a slippery slope, but there isn't that like painful consequence that, that reshuffles their life entirely? This, this is something we all interact with in some way or another, whether it's, you know, um, a friend suffering from addiction, a loved one with some sort of a mental trauma, but we all have people that we interact with that because we love them, we just want the best for them and we want something better. And, and it's a very, very difficult to have our frame of reference, you know, head, head on over to their brain. Um, and when we, when we try to help others in that way. And when we try to create a solution for someone that we, we see in our life to have some, you know, to need some help, we take a really big risk when we're doing that. And, and we're, when we're making some assumptions, one is we're, we're risking that we are stable enough to help them, that, that opening ourselves up isn't going to affect us in some unpredictable way. Secondly, we're, we're assuming that we sort of know more than they do, that we know them better than they do enough to, um, to process that. Um, and lastly, that taking away the pain or the unnecessary consequence would be better than them having to go through that themselves. Yes. Um, I, I want to touch upon one thing you hit on, and this is having, being sure that you are a master. And right. I see this happening a lot when it comes to career slash financial advice. This happens. Everybody's got an opinion on the, oh, you should quit your job and do this. Everyone, you should market yourself this way. You should do blah, blah, blah. And I always say to myself, like, who am I getting this advice from? You know what I mean? Like, like chances are, uh, unless you're running in some pretty high circles, the people giving you this advice aren't millionaires or successful business tycoons, but everyone always gives their two cents about how you should handle your finances or how you should walk into your boss's office and demand X, Y, and Z. And, and so many people are willing to put their nose out there, but I'm like, well, you're not exactly a millionaire yourself. And I think that's like a classic example of people thinking that they are the authority on something when they don't have like the evidence in place. Absolutely. And we don't, we don't realize how our words influence each other. And there are some things people, strangers have said about me 10 years ago, and it just stuck with me and kind of has become this weird thorn in my identity that I can't. And so I think it's absolutely true of, of really being cautious of when we're giving advice and when, what we're listening to. Yes. Yeah. You know, another, another thing I always think of is sometimes if you go to the gym, obviously I haven't done that in quite some time because of COVID and all the gyms being shut down. I, I know that like if a personal trainer is around and occasionally like if I'm doing something wrong, they'll come up to me, Hey man, you really need to do it this way or something. If, if they're feeling in a good mood and I look at them and if they're like super jacked and muscular, I'm like, I'm listening to that guy because he clearly appears to be an authority uh, but I've also had experiences where I've seen people hit the gym and they're, they're kind of like one hit wonders, but they already assume that they are like the authority of this area. They, they already assume that they know exactly what it is that they are doing. So I, I think having that vigilance first, and this is both for the person giving the advice and the person receiving the advice, where that advice is coming from. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm a swimmer and I, I love to swim. I always have, and I have some weird proclivity when I'm in the pool with other people. I just want to like comment on their stroke or give advice or whatever that is. And it's gotta be, I know it's ego. Like I really think that's what it's more based in. And I'm just, I just got to check myself. Well, hold on. Like, hey, people don't want that advice. Actually, actually Claire, um, since you are like, I actually really suck at swimming. Now I, I can, <laughs> I can swim to the end of the pool, but I'm all, like, my breathing sucks. So I actually would like for somebody, I would actually be one of those people in the pool that would like an expert swimmer to come and be like, Hey, uh, you need to breathe like that underwater or something like that. The trouble, the, what would happen is I would say you got to kick more or you have to draw your <laughs> hand like this, that would stick in your brain and it would totally throw off you would be thinking about that all the time because I'm not taking into account where you come from, what you, like what your history is with swimming, what other things you're doing and not doing. And it would stick with you in this way that it, I wasn't giving you like a holistic, really true view. And maybe that's just my bias because I like to kick, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's just a weird, it's tricky. You know, that's, it's interesting. So it's like, as a, as a master swimmer, you kind of even have like this, this humbleness about it that you're like, even though I can totally uh, like swim 50 laps without stopping back and forth like a seal, you still feel kind of reluctant to just come in there and swoop and be the, the, the savior that, that, that teaches somebody how to swim. First of all, thank you for calling me a master swimmer. I, know, I, <laughs> I don't know. What's an expert swim. swimmer called? Is there a name for that? I don't know. I don't know. A, a porpoise of some kind. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I have a tendency to do it and to feel competitive in the water because I, I feel strong. Um, and so that is something that I do really try to check and I check, okay, why am I being comparative and what's the ego going on here? Um, because the truth is the only reason that, you know, I have any proficiency is just I've been in the pool for hundreds of hours. Right. So, yeah. And and it's a rhythm. It's it's music. It's it's arithmetic that comes from being in the pool for a hundred hours. So I can't give you a fast track on those hundreds of hours. Um, and why would you want to take away someone's hundreds of hours? Because th- therein lies the beauty of life. It's in that journey. Now you know what's even even interesting. Like if I let's say got into the pool and some random lady got in the pool and said, you're doing it wrong. You need to use the blah, blah. You know, I would be like, all right, all right, right. But if I watched you in the pool for a while and was like, oh, this person knows what they're doing, then maybe I might actually just approach you myself and be like, hey, you look really good at this. You think, would you mind giving me a few pointers? Or you would just start you know, copying something that you see. And I think this is what children do as they, you know, what babies do with their faces and with their expressions. And I I remember watching the Olympics as a kid and seeing this one female swimmer that she bounced when she swam. And I just thought that was the coolest thing that she was like bouncing on this beat. I started doing it. And I don't know if it makes me fast or not. I think it's unique. Um, but it was just some weird hitch that you see. And I think that is such a key element of leading by example is that we pick up these minuscule things that our teacher said or a habit we saw. And we, I think it aligns with our values in some way that it clicks and we imitate it going forward. And yes. that, that's really powerful. You know, this, what you just said is really nice. It actually reminds me of a, a high school volleyball teacher that I had. And this high school volleyball teacher 
always said, you have to serve it this way and do that. And no one wanted to listen to him because he like, people were like, well, the rules don't say I have to do, like, I have to like uh, clough, uh, grasp my hands together. Like he wanted us to kind of lift the ball up and, and bend our knees down and do it that way. But if you were tall and powerful, you could just slap that ball over the net with one arm. And everyone was like resistant to it. And no one wanted to follow him. And he kept on doubling down and he would yell at people for doing it their way. But then I think I had another gym teacher that just did it the proper way. And everyone saw how freaking amazing he was on the court. And they were like, oh, I want to be like that guy over there. Yep. Yep. And I think I see this in the people that I gravitate, the adults I gravitate to, right? That, that, and for me, I think it's people that live, that appear to live in truth, in some type of truth. If someone is coming at it and they just seem so transparent and true to themselves, even if I don't agree with them, there's some magic in that that really I'm drawn to. And I think people, there's a, there's an element there. And I think whatever that is for you, when we see people like that, it's, it's a part of our map that we've never seen before. And it's really inspiring. I want to talk about those magical people. And I noticed something about those magical people. They are not actually the most anxious to give advice. And I I think a part of that reason is, and, and maybe this describes you as the master swimmer is that you're, you're, you're so absorbed in your own growth that you don't, it's not even concerning you to like step. And I don't know, I'm not saying you're being selfish, but I'm saying that you are so into building yourself that you don't even see yourself as a teacher in that, in that particular moment, because you're so into being the best swimmer, the best volleyball player, that you're not even aware of the other eyes that are looking at you. Absolutely. And I think when, you know, to take this out of sports, when I think about just my mental health, I see myself, you know, although I think I have a lot of tools that I've developed to help keep myself strong, I still see myself as teetering, right? And every day is still a challenge just in because life is hard. And, you know, I, I luckily I have good health and my family is healthy and it's not as hard as it could be, but it still feel myself teetering. And I think when we align ourselves to have personal responsibility and we, we create that circle, however big it is, whether it's our city or if it's our school or if it's just our block or if it's just you and your sister, whoever, whatever that realm of your life is, it's hard enough to keep that thing together. And so to open up and to pull someone or try to help someone else often can open up, you know, Pandora's box in many ways. It can throw you off your own game. It can lower your expectation of your map that if you're really trying to keep your map pure in some way and you, you kind of bring this other bar that, that can be equally kind of pulling you off. And so there is a danger in helping others. And I know this sounds selfish, um, but Peterson's classic example here is the lifeguard, right? That lifeguards are trained that when you go to help a drowning person, you come in kind of legs first. You right. don't come in with your organs or your head where you can be pulled down and you both drown. Because if somebody's going to drown, they're going to drown. Because if you drown, everyone at the, at the beach drowns, right? <laughs> and, and I think it sounds selfish. And I think especially for women, we don't like to orient ourselves in this way, but you have to put your life mask on first in the plane. Yes. We really need to protect ourselves um, or else, you know, we all, you know, what's the point, right? We all go down. 
Yes, absolutely. And this, you know, it gets, it, it, it's easy to, to distance ourselves from a drowning stranger in, in a sense. Like, you know, it gets a lot more stickier when it's family, when it's loved ones, or it could even be a spouse or someone that they're not going away anywhere anytime soon out of your life. And, and, that, and, that, and that gets extremely sticky and it gets very messy. Now, before we get to the, the family, though, I want to speak about one other thing. Let's just say you're being your master self, giving like direct instruction and verbally trying to change someone is not going to work. Let's say you're being your master self for quite some time and you notice that it's, it's not quite spreading as much as you would like. Can we talk a little bit about what's, what's a good length of time? So like, let's just say, for example, put your dishes away, right? You're leading by example. Oh, I took this glass of milk. That glass is now going in the dishwasher. Look at me, look at me. And you know, your roommates or the people you live with, they're watching you do this. They're watching you put the glass away, turning on the dishwasher. But it just, that mastery just seems to elude them. How do we deal in those kind of situations? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things going on is one is, does that roommate want to live in squalor? Mm. Maybe they do, right? And this goes into don't cast pearls before the swine, that if you bring pearls to a pig, they really don't know what that is. Like they just don't, they're not oriented to that. And so not only are you losing your pearls and, and you're wasting your time or you're knocking yourself off, um, but you know, it's just, it's not going to go anywhere. And so you know, before you try, if you want to, if you want to get someone to do their dishes and they're just not going to take accountability for their life, I would say you probably might want to get out of that living situation. And I know it sounds harsh, but you can't convince someone that they have a big journey to go on before you even get to the dishes. If you think, okay, they're past that, you know, this is just a few things that we can improve on. Positive reinforcement, I think is the only kind of thing I've seen to start to mirror with, with being a role model is in those little moments when they do put the put the pot away or they do something else that is thoughtful like going way all in on that and it's gonna feel a little disingenuous in the beginning but it really is i mean it's charitable because you're you're, you're propping someone up and just giving that positive reinforcement everyone wants wants to feel that it makes us feel better about ourselves they'll start to validate their identity as a person who takes care of themselves and takes responsibility for themselves and i think that 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 i have seen more that's interesting because that actually connects to our previous conversation with Dale Carnegie and sandwiching bad stuff with good stuff in a way. In this case, you're not necessarily sandwiching anything bad. You're just leading by example, but then you're using positive uh, reinforcement. But I, I think the key thing is, is that much like our discussion last time, making sure that that positive reinforcement is 100% genuine. Exactly. If, if that person is doing something like, oh my God, you locked the door. Whoa. You know, like if, if, it's, if it's totally fake and you're not really proud of that person for doing it, I think that might actually be patronizing and they might actually pick up on that a little bit. Yeah, that's a very important thing to note. They will pick up on it. And I think, you know, the the, the idea of sort of listening or, or just coming to conversations without your own BS or, it, you know, behind it will, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's something to keep in mind. I, yeah, I think, you know, orienting ourselves 
before we go into those conversations is important and just checking that. And then I think, you know, in a clinical sense, psychologists need to do this all the time of what am I projecting in this conversation? What's coming across in my face, right? Really, and in, in if we can listen openly and, and project openly, um, we'll, we'll likely have better outcomes. All right, Claire, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. You're in your nice apartment and you got a new roommate. We'll call her Samantha. Okay. Mm -hmm. Samantha comes, moves into your apartment. Oh, I love it here. I, I love, I love the picture in the back of your room. Super happy. She's not putting away the dishes. Walk me through the exact timeline of, of how we're going to deal with Samantha, who's now living in your apartment. And you just it's notice she's a sweet girl, but just not putting away those dishes. It's interesting you say timeline because I think timing is a huge element of it. Um, and I was just talking with a group of girlfriends about this yesterday um, about how often you wait until it's too late uh, or you wait until that resentment has built to the point where you're, you're disliking them for things that are way out of the realm of the actual thing. Um, and so I, my fine personal experience is I had a roommate who I just love, you know, she's like my sister. We lived together for five years, but she is much um, more extroverted, a little more, more of a taker. And I mean that in just a, like, she's more aggressive, more outgoing, less agreeable than I am where I'm a little bit more introverted, more, you know, empathetic or feeling motivated. And so uh, in that dynamic, she kind of would take alpha, right? Or whatever that dominance feeling is. And therefore things went unspoken for far longer probably than they had to. And so I think that's really something I've tried to do in my work now and in everything is the second that the um, uncomfortableness feel, something feels icky, and it's really a gut thing, kind of calling it there and, and putting the no there and kind of starting putting a line in the sand um, so that it doesn't go, go far. So in the case of the, of the dishes, I think just saying, you know, I would use sort of a causal thing or in work a lot. Sometimes I will ask someone if they are ready to even hear my feedback. Can I give you some feedback? Is right. oftentimes an interesting consent. Like someone can give consent to really, yeah, I want to hear this. Because the thing is, if, if you just start by leading by example without having an initial conversation, then that could kind of be viewed as passive aggressive a little bit. Right. And, and the other person might not even be aware you're leading by example. Like they, they may be so in their own other world that you're leading by example by putting the dishes away, but they're so in their other world that they don't even see that. And not only don't see, they don't see the effects of their dishes. And so I think that conversation, that first conversation would be around or it's more impactful when it's around cause and effect. When I come home late from work and I have done my shopping for the week and I am exhausted and all I want to do is relax, this throws me off. I have a longer time going to bed and it, it, it hurts me the next day. Like just showing that causal or, um, you know, how it impacts just a larger system, right? That we all interact in systems. We're not just these unique beings. We're, we're made up of in all these individual cells and starting to show someone how what they're doing is impacting others is eye-opening. Do you think, um, and this might create uh, a World War Three in your apartment. <laughs> do you think that like, it's ever appropriate to emulate bad behavior as a, as a learning tool. Like if your roommate's not putting away the dishes, then you stop putting away the dishes and say, Oh, well, eventually one of us has to do this and let's just see how long that goes. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say probably not because it, 
it would throw me off of my thing, right? It's hard enough for me to do my own dishes. And when you start to make excuses for yourself to not orient at the, the highest you possibly can and not aim as high as you can, it's just not, not good. Um, but I do like that the, the example that came to my mind is I saw a cute video of a baby crying or a toddler crying and the dad started crying wow. and the kid was like, hang on, hold on, stop. Right. It was kind of <laughs> off, but and the, the kid totally stopped crying. And so I think there is something to showing a mirror up to someone and really showing them their behavior that, that might work. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I think, I think that, what I like what you originally said about like not compromising who you are to teach someone else. So it's like, I can't lower who Claire is and Claire is a dish putting away kind of gal. And, and that's not going to change about me. Even, even if I'm trying to help somebody else and teach them some kind of like backwards lesson about like putting their dishes away, that's a part of your identity. So you should never compromise your own identity to help somebody else. And that's, that's like drowning. And now that I think about it, I, I've, mm. you've helped me actually flush this through my head. That's like drowning at the bottom of the ocean with that person that you're trying to save. Right, right. Yeah, you're willing to sacrifice what you've developed, your own oxygen for something else. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's get to the uh, final frontier here of family. So with the roommate, you know, you know, after about two months or three months or six months, I don't know what your limit is. You go, Hey, Samantha, it's just not working out. I think we're going to have to split blah, blah, blah. What do you do with your family where you really can't necessarily have those conversations? Yes. So this is um, not an easy one to generalize because every family is different and every situation is different. Um, and so I think what you really need to do is take stock of, of what's going on in your dynamic and in the, in the family dynamic and going on with them as individuals, as well as in the entire system. There are some different potential examples. You know, I think all of our family, all of our parents and siblings and aunts and uncles, um, have elements of themselves and part of our relationship with them that aren't ideal and that we don't like and that we got to fix. And that really is culture, right? That is generations. That's how evolution has happened, is that children are born and cousins are born and they look at their the aunts and uncles and, and say, hmm, there are some things there that I don't like. There are some things there that had a negative impact on me. There are some things there when I look at all the uncles across this generation that are troublesome. Um, and that's, that is that is so natural to human evolution. Right, and, it's always the uncles. You know, it's always it's the bad uncles. <laughs> of course, of course we, get, we all have uncles. Um, and, and so I think in that case, we cannot just abandon the, our families and abandon them all and, and move to communes with all of our friends and just start over because part of culture is coming of age and parsing out the parts that we like and integrating the parts we like with the other things we like in the world and the parts we don't like really consciously getting rid of them. And so in my own experience, that involved my kind of pushing my parents away too harshly Right. And really rejecting them, going out, really figuring myself out, figuring out what my values were, what I liked, what I didn't like. And then coming back and kind of facing that and greeting them again as an adult, as someone who could be part of this reciprocal relationship and even take care of them. But there's certain things that I wasn't going to stand for. Right. There's certain parts of it that I just 
wasn't part of me and there are certain parts of it that I totally love about them and certain parts that I don't, but the parts that I don't, I'm not going to fix. I'm not going to change it in them because I can't, they're done, they're baked, but I'm not going to continue it on with myself. And I'm going to just part, take the part I like. And so that kind of reintegration of ourselves in which we take the parts of our, our ancestors that we like, and we integrate it with our promise for the future. That's a really healthy coming of age story. Yeah, that, that, it's interesting that you use the word baked as in like that person is done. And I, I agree, like there is like, you know, I think if you have this agenda, like, oh yeah, I, I found out this new way in life and I'm going to get my almost 70 year old parents to kind of like change their ways, that's going to be a really uphill battle. Is it ever safe though, no matter how old you are, is there an age where we're like, you're baked, that's it. I, you know, like I like this idea that just, at that age, once you hit this age, you're baked and like there will be no change and that's it. Or do you think everybody still has that like potential to like get a little better? Yeah, I mean, it varies person to person in how kind of growth minded we are, right? How, how, how high in openness are we? These are like personality traits that some of us, we just kind of are lifelong learners. Some of us just live in a system of equations and we use those equations to go about our lives. So I think it varies, but mostly I would say people start to develop their kind of viewpoint of the world around 25. After about 30, 35, that thing is pretty solid. And so that's generally the ideology that will take someone through the rest of their life. That, I mean, that is completely generalized and I'm not a, a, a developmental psychologist, but that's kind of been my interpretation. And we see this with young people is like angsty teenage boys, angsty, angsty, angsty. Um, and eventually you just kind of get tired being angsty and oh, that's the way the world works, you know, and that becomes a grumpy old man or whatever it is. I, I think it's like, maybe, maybe we should try for everybody, but let's put our thumb or let's put emphasis on younger people because there is that, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things here. One, they might be more impressionable. And two, this is going to sound maybe a little wrong. If a 93-year-old decides to change their life, you have to think to yourself, well, what kind of impact are they going to be able to have on the world at 93? Now, I'm sure there are 93-year-olds that go on to get PhDs and do amazing stuff. But I think that as you get older, the probability of that happening uh, begins to diminish, whereas a 24-year-old that changes their life, you have so many more years ahead yeah. that they they could contribute to the world and contribute to themselves. Yeah, and, and telling your parent that you've wasted your life or this ideology is wrong is is akin to saying, you know, you've been wrong for 30, you wasted a lot of time, right? And that's a really hard pill for someone to swallow because it's it's the identity they've created with around their entire life. So when you ruin that map or you say your map was wrong, you're throwing someone into chaos in a time where they're not ready, like they're out of chaos. They've, they've, they've built their walled city. Right, they're not exactly. ready for it to be, you know, but it's your job. You're building your city. So build it better. But don't go bombing other people's cities. Not and don't right. shatter their identity. So like, like if you're past a certain age, you already have your identity and it's not a good time to go through an identity crisis. Awesome. Right. But I think what does work and what I've seen a little bit is there's a lot of things with my parents that I have told them many times. And I think they would know that I don't like it about them or that our values are different in that way. And they kind of brushed it off for a long time. And now that they see me living it, or kind hmm. of integrated, 
it's the same thing's coming back. I'm leading by example a little bit in these ways. And they're kind of coming about it on their own because they see the impact it's had on someone that they love. I like that. I like that. They, they see that their daughter is doing super well doing this different thing. And they're like, huh, well, it, it's working well for our daughter. Like, well, what do you think, honey? Why don't we try yeah. that? <laughs> now, now, there is, though, a case of parents who, whose intentions aren't there. Right. And so I think that there are situations with with loved ones, with parents, with with friends, with siblings, where walking away, maybe it's for a period of time, maybe it's forever, really is the only way you will be able to establish harmony within your own walled city. I think cases of addiction are a really strong case of this, that it issues of addiction, especially when you combine them with issues of mental illness like schizophrenia. I can't imagine a more complicated thing to grapple with. And that takes a ton of resources and a lot of people. Um, and so I think, you know, in times of intense childhood trauma, we have to get okay as a community with abandoning, you know, abandoning people um, in, in service to ourselves. Yeah, I, you know, that, that's, you know, that's a very, that strikes a sensitive chord, but I actually agree with you on that. Um, this one of my rules, and, and this can apply, mo this could be mostly friends, but it could apply to family in extreme cases, is the one-year rule. And the one-year rule, for me at least, states, if I, you know, I've been leading by example, I've been, my face is blue, I'm frustrated, we need a year apart. And I, I think that people think that that's a form of abandonment. And we actually chastise, oh, my God, you abandoned your son. He needed you. And, and, and you just shut your door on him. And I'm like, well, maybe that parent needed to shut the door on their son so that they could suffer a little bit and then get better. Because I, I think, you know, with, with things like addiction, for example, if that son or that daughter knows that, oh, I, I still have a comfy bed that I can come home to at night. I, I know that that shelter is always there. And I know that that unconditional love is there. There's no catalyst to change. There's no, su there's, there, there's no suffering if somebody else is constantly cleaning up your mess. It's not until there's like a year of separation and now you have to actually clean up your own messes that there's pain and that pain is actually what can lead to growth. Absolutely. I think this isn't, this is a tool that is not leveraged or talked about, but I really think is powerful. I think it's powerful for friendships, relationships, and you know, codependency is so common. And just the way I think we're so blind to the ways in which we become like the people that are around us and we become dependent on them. Um, and so taking a step back and removing ourselves from that situation, it sucks in the beginning because because that it becomes like oxygen. It becomes part of who we are. Um, but I really can think it's transformative. I did it recently with a friend and I didn't, I mean, I didn't know I was doing it until you're now. Oh yeah. It's unconscious. <laughs> yeah. It's really is unconscious of a reset period, but I just, you know, it just felt too close and too clingy. And, you know, there was a, a values mismatch that I was becoming resentful of. You know, and, and, and people need to be unique entities with different values and, and that's okay. Um, but it, I, it was a very powerful tool. And, and if it truly is a person that you love, I, what is a year, right? Like that love is still there. You're, they still are in your heart and, and, and hopefully they will be after. And the thing is, is that when you're, when you're in their life, 
and you're telling them to do something they don't want to do, they're actively rebelling against you. They see you as a, a form of authority or some kind of antagonist in their life. Like you're always telling me what to do. But once you remove yourself, now there's no authority figure in which they're rebelling against. So they no longer have that voice of them telling them what to do. And then they have to, they have to then make the decision. You're actually allowing them to think for the very first time in their lives, because up until that point, they've just been rebelling against you and they haven't actually had, you haven't given them the opportunity to think and actually question themselves and be like, wow, is what I'm doing really correct? Absolutely. That's so well said. And I think our thoughts, we start to think our thoughts through how the pe we know the people would, we love would think them through. And so it becomes just totally filtered by our, our understanding of, of the people that we respect. And you're right that when you pull out of that, there is this grappling with, at first you have to even realize that now they're just your thoughts. You can't blame them on anyone else. They're now they're just yours and you have to deal with them and really think about why they're there. Um, and that's a, a very powerful time of strength. And it's, it's hard for the other party too, right? Are they going to be willing to come back? And I think so many teenagers push away from their parents and their parents really find that troubling um, when it, it is more natural than that. You know, I, I think it also comes down to our notion of love. Because when we think of love, we think, I love you, I love you, hug, mm -hmm. hug, hug, kiss, kiss, kiss. But what we fail to realize is that loving somebody means you actually have to do something to them that's actually painful for you to do. Like mm -hmm. that parent is not a monster who throws their drug addicted son or daughter out of the house. They're not a monster. They're actually, they love their child so much that they realize that they're, enable, they're enabling bad behavior and that the only way that that child is ever going to find redemption is by being thrusted into pain. Absolutely. And absolutely. And I think to um, kind of put a, even from a religious studies sense, this is the Christian concept of humans being created in the image of God, right? So if we do think that we and the people we love, I mean, whatever belief aside, it's just a really interesting heuristic to think about this through. If we think about ourselves and others as being made in the image of something that's perfect. And then we think of this story of God giving a part of himself in his son, putting it on earth and then letting it be brutally murdered and, and crucified. There is this element of seeing the beauty, each, each human having godliness within them, being sacrificed and coming out of that sacrifice stronger than before. And we have to let people we love do that or yeah. else they will just remain children. Absolutely. I love that. And we can't also have that fear like, oh my God, what if in that year they die and I never say how much? It's like, no, you did the right thing and you can't think those thoughts. You just have to, you have to say that sometimes it's better to separate and let this person grow than to let them keep uh, dragging right on along. Absolutely. Yeah. And with that note, I think we've had a great discussion and I am, I've certainly learned a thing or two about uh, leading by example. Yes, we will be leading ourselves from now on. Thank you so much, Claire. A pleasure as always, Erin. That concludes our 10th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod. Please stay tuned for our next episode.